When you're alone as a kid, the monsters see you as weaker. You don't even know they're getting closer until it's too late. something. The clown. Yeah, I saw him too. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. Hello and welcome to Deja Vu, the Ithacan's weekly review podcast. We are finally back after two months and like Two weeks where the studios weren't open and we couldn't record anything. I am Reviews Editor Jake Leary, and I am here today with staff writer Colin Tessier, who anybody who has been listening to this will remember because he comes up a lot. We are talking about It Today, which is the remake of the 1990 miniseries and the adaptation of the 1986 Stephen King book. First half of the story, we'll talk about that in a little bit in the way this is different from what's come before, but let's kick it off. What is It? What a loaded question. What is it? Well, the story about growing up, and there's a killer clown, it's a story that brings seven children together, and all, of, all seven of them are very unique characters. And they're unique in that they each have their own burdens that they carry, and they each have these struggles to deal with. And so they have to deal with those things while facing this monster that is in their town. And that's really just the, the whole the crux of it. They have to deal with the, their own struggles while fighting the monster. Yeah, this is one of the strongest Stephen King character pieces, at Agreed. least yep. in my opinion. Um, and both of us are the like snotty book readers, so we are, we're coming to this movie with that baggage. Um, but I think this version of the movie, which stars Bill Skarsgård as... Pennywise and oh my god I remember hearing that and thinking that was such a bizarre choice but this version of the movie hits on all the points that the book does it's scary it's funny and it does have that really endearing character element to it which is something that the 1990 movie didn't have I mean you look at that and that thing is a mess it's three hours it combines a thousand page book into like three hours of runtime which misses so much and this movie does miss a lot too there are moments of like uncomfortable stilted dialogue and weird outdated concepts in there especially towards the third act but it really does sell that they feel like friends the losers club and that is the that is the group of children that is what they call themselves because they are all outsiders in one way or another you have a favorite among these seven oddball characters i actually have two favorites for very distinct reasons you've been holding out on me but of equal importance to me so i love richie some people think that he's annoying in the movie. Who, who is Richie? For, so, pre- pretend nobody knows what you're talking about. Of course. So Richie is a member of the club that he's just like, he's a motor mouth. Like he's always talking, getting himself into trouble because of that. Uh, the movie kind of hints that he has ADHD, which is really his burden to carry. Is that really makes him kind of stand apart from his peers in a bad way. And, you know, nobody likes to really hang around with him because he's always talking, always, you know, get himself into trouble. Uh, but the, to me, he's really endearing because of, he's just hysterical. He's always cracking one-liners and quips throughout the movie. And that's real, the, it, it ends up being one of my favorite things in the movie. It's just how funny Richie is and is that element of comedic relief. All right, and who's your number two? So this one's much more personal. I really relate to Ben. Ben is the fat kid of the group. 
and he's really sensitive, especially compared to other children of that age. And I relate to that because I really it just spoke to my own childhood experience. So I was able to really connect with him on that level. We, we both come from the same place. And again, that is like the real strength of this is that there are seven characters in there. There are seven young children. Chances are you're going to see this movie and remember some part of your life that is like some part of theirs. And that is the magic of the book for me. That is the magic of the movie. But that's not the entire picture. That is only half the story. So the other half of the story is the shape-shifting, cosmically-influenced killer clown monster um, that everybody has seen. Everybody is familiar with the, again, the 1990 version. So how does how does Bill Skarsgård, a typically comedic actor uh, how does he handle that he is phenomenal the first time he opens his mouth like the first scene of the movie it blew me away just his voice for the character his delivery sends chills down my spine like when i heard it in the trailer to an extent but just having it really amplified in the theater it terrified me and uh just throughout the movie just he's, he plays the character so well and i see a lot of parallels with Skarsgård and Pennywise, it's similar to Ledger and the Joker back then with The Dark Knight. A lot of people were like, what are they doing casting Heath Ledger as the Joker? It doesn't make any sense. And I feel like that was a pretty similar reaction with Skarsgård, but both actors wound up playing the characters incredibly well. Like, I can't imagine at this point anyone else playing Pennywise anywhere near that profoundly. Just an incredible performance. He really... I felt like he captured what uh, King was going for when he wrote the character, and he captured what the writers for this movie were going for in the way they characterized Pennywise. He walks that line between something that's human and something that isn't. So when you see him in you know, the first scene of the movie, there's a downpour. This little kid runs up to this sewer grate to get this, his lost toy back, and you see his face come up out of the shadows. He has those bizarre proportions, the big forehead, the big teeth, and he opens his mouth and speaks. And he speaks like something that's trying to be human, which is a really difficult thing to capture because we don't know what that's like. We don't know what something trying to be human is, so it's that other. You know, he speaks with all of these pauses and pronounced P's, which I don't know if we have a pop filter on these, so I don't know if you'll understand. I don't think we do. Yeah, Skarsgård really, like, nails it in a way that I didn't think he could. And it's it's not only him, it's the way he's used, where you see him appear... And he defies reality, which is what that character does. The imagery surrounding him is very surreal. His, like, contortions and his proportions, like I've already said. The forms he takes, you know, taking the form of something that resonated with me. He takes the form of a painting in a house that really scares one of the kids, uh, Stanley. And I, I have, like, I have something like that. I had a lamp in my house that was this freaky little twisted metal monster of a thing and I hated it so much but that moment like staring at that artifact in your house and seeing it come to life and come after you that's like a nightmare that I can relate to really well so where the relatable childhood element is really strong the relatable horror element is also really strong like you can picture yourself in that position as a kid I think that works really well that's what Pennywise is. Pennywise is the thing that goes bump in the night, whatever that means to you. And the way the character works is that he knows what you're afraid of, and that's what form he can take, and that's how he gets you. And for so for the seven characters themselves, you know, he knows what they're afraid of, and that's what he does. And for us as viewers, we can just kind of imagine that in our own lives. And then quite often with characters, what they're scared of is our very common childhood fears, and that's just one of the really big things the movie does well, is that it captures those fears that are really common and are relatable to the audience, and it shows them very well. So we've gushed about this movie, like, 
oh wow so much praise uh so fantastic because it it really is good it's not perfect but it's good but that is the point it isn't perfect so i know you've had some issues with it what are they up to a, per, a point in the movie pretty much soon after the climax begins i was gonna say wow five out of five stars this is absolutely perfect i love it and then as the climax progresses and then as the the conflict is resolved i started realizing that wasn't quite how how i thought it was i it was it's not flawless and the thing the problem this movie runs into is that if you've read the book first and this isn't true for many movies if not all uh, adaptations of books or other previous source material is that you're much more likely to pick up on the differences and the things that you see that are missing and what liberties that the the director or the writers take and so I found myself doing that both as I was watching and then now in retrospect there are things I picked up on like oh they they were missing this or that and it's not fair to the movie because they're trying to tell a version of the story but for me as a viewer that really played into my reaction to the movie and that you know for my biggest thing like pretty soon in the movie they made it clear that all seven members of the losers club were already friends, already, you know, really close together. And a huge part of the book is that the whole story is about is about them coming together and building that, those relationships rather than already being an established friend group. So that was one big problem that I had. And in terms of just general problems, the resolution of the conflict really, to me, was not done very well. It felt rushed. It was a little sloppy. It kind of seemed like the end of the movie, they were just kind of running out of time and they were just kind of, you know, tying together what they could. And I don't want to spoil anything, but the way that they do act, literally end the big fight in the movie really left a bad taste in my mouth. Because it, bo- both in the sense that it really differed from what King did in the novel, and then just if you when you're watching it, you're thinking, that's not a really good way to kind of push an antagonist into the background, because he's obviously not defeated necessarily, but he's clearly still present. Yeah, and that's the tricky thing about adapting this source material is firstly it's an a thousand page book that's always tough and secondly it's an a thousand page book but there are two main parts of it the first being the kids fighting pennywise and the second being the adults coming back to fight pennywise again but those two things don't happen separately you'll switch off parts like you'll switch off chapter by chapter you'll switch who you're following and that becomes really difficult to adapt in a movie you can't do that because the book ends in a dual climax. You have the kids vanquishing Pennywise and you have the adults vanquishing Pennywise. And you don't understand what Pennywise is until you get to the climactic point. But the movie splits it and it only focuses on the kids. So by the end of that, in theory, you'd have all the secrets and you'd understand what Pennywise is. But you can't do that because you need to get to that adult portion and you need to preserve mystery. You lose the finality that you get in the book with that the climax that the kids go through because you've been waiting all book to figure out what happens and how they solve this problem. And you lose a little bit of that. It still stands on its own fine, even divorcing it of how the book ends. The, I think the biggest issue is they traded one one famously gross ending scene for a culturally out of touch scene. And I'm just going to blatantly say it because leaving it ambiguous in this sense is really difficult to do. Stephen King's It famously ends with the kids all, the 12-year-old kids all having sex with each other to escape the monster, which is, that's not great. Um, That's not something you should really have in a piece of media. That's just weird and uncomfortable. Logically, it makes sense, but it still makes me squeamish. The movie doesn't do that. Spoilers here, you're going to understand how the climax is set up, but the the one girl in the Losers Club, Beverly Marsh, is kidnapped and become and functions as the damsel in distress, which they didn't need 
to do. It feels like they were trying to solve a problem and they didn't understand how to do it, so they just subbed in a lesser problem. And that's not great. You'd think a movie that is about powerless people coming together and having power would understand the problem with creating this kind of outdated archetype. That was the, the plot point I was talking about. Like Up until the point that Beverly was kidnapped, I was ready to just heap endless praise upon the movie. But once she was kidnapped, it really just really rubbed me the wrong way because in the book, and even if you think about it just in terms of effectiveness for the plot, all seven members are equally important. All seven members are equally as powerful, really, in defeating the monster in some way, shape, or form. In the movie, when Beverly is kidnapped, that makes her, as Jake said, the damsel in distress, and that just really takes away a lot of her power. And especially in a society where we want to really value various progressive movements, especially you know feminism and equal treatment for women, it really just makes Beverly look like a weak character, both weak in the sense that she gets herself kidnapped and weak in the sense that she has to have the other character save her. You know, to me, that just really ruined what could have been a much more um, gratifying and successful climax for the movie. Divorcing the uncomfortable, famous childhood orgy scene, that is the the issue um, with this adaptation. And Stephen King books are often, uh, often subject to major changes when they're adapted. But that was a segue. And we're going to come back and talk about that in the next topic. Because I really want to talk about Stephen King. So here, listen to this lobby music that I love so much. And we're going to take a break. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. We're back. We're going to talk about Stephen King, which is such a complicated subject for me personally. I want to know your first Stephen King experience. All right. This is horrible for me because I have a terrible memory oh no the, for, the one thing i definitely remember you're talking about a book or a movie we'll be broad all right either i remember uh well actually no that that, that, that lets me go back further i saw the shining the movie like the 1980 movie when i was i want to say seven it was a very uh inappropriately young age um i watched it with my dad and my brother and seeing it that young you know i i always saw the, the big scares the movie like the, the elevator of blood and the creepy twin girls and yeah freaked me out and after that i avoided the movie for a long time because i really just it kind of scarred me so then we watched it again last year with, uh, with a bunch of my friends and then by that point i'd read the book too so then of course i ran into oh they didn't do this right or they left this out and you know i just find that that let me kind of realize a lot of time with stephen king you can't accurately adapt what he what he writes because it's either impossible to put on a screen for ethical reasons as seen in it or practical reasons like there's no way with special no amount of special effects can go can really capture some of the things that he writes which i think is true for plenty of writers so pretty much uh most of his notable films that have most of the books have been adapted you know they've been on some level disappointing because they can't accurately capture what the story of the book i think that's true in it in some ways even though i i love it i thought it was you know it, it was the best horror movie i've ever seen i'll say that and i'll, I'll say that tumble in the face but uh, with, with the shining very different book in terms of the plot in terms of the characterization don't get me started on jack nicholson man and you look at the dark tower and that just really 
Yikes. We don't speak about that movie here. Yeah. We don't we don't invoke that that name in a cinematic sense here anymore. I, I think you're absolutely right. Stephen King is very hard to adapt, but it's not only because what he writes is hard to make, it's because what he writes and it hurts to say because I do love Stephen King, but a lot of times he doesn't write things well. He doesn't know how to end things. That is like a notorious Stephen King problem. Um if you look at Many of his stories, if you look at The Stand, I think The Stand is the best example of this. Uh, spoilers for The Stand, if you haven't read this, you know, classic novel that's been around for like three decades. Um, that movie ends with a literal hand of God descending down and er- eradicating everyone. Um, all A bunch of the heroes, a bunch of the bad guys, dropping a nuke, setting off a bomb. But then the book goes on for another like 100 pages. The pacing isn't isn't there, the ending isn't there. And this is because Stephen King is very famous for a style of writing, which I will criticize him for until I'm until I'm blue in the face, to use a <laughs> phrase you just used, um, but also do personally. He doesn't plan when he writes. He just writes. And it's produced some great stuff, it being an example. It is one of my f- favorite books. I'm confident in that, I say with a questioning voice. But it, it leads to a lot of problems. The, the Mist is a great example of this. Uh, it, it's a book about a fog descending over a small... I'm, I'm confident in saying it's a main town because everything in Stephen King world is a main town. Yep. And giant monsters are out in the mist. People hold up in a grocery store. End of the book comes, and it's just people driving out into the mist because he didn't know how to end it. So he didn't. <laughs> and the movie actually has a concrete ending. There is a Twilight Zonian sense of irony. It ends. It has a conclusion in a way that a lot of Stephen King things don't. So as much as I love the man, he's riddled with problems. True. As a writer and a person. Uh, I mean, I like him as a person. I mean, that's a completely random thing to say about somebody you've never met, but he's had a, a troubled past. I think he's a really interesting case study as a writer. There was a period of time where he took so many drugs. He, the, one of his books, I forget which one it was, but he pulled off the shelf and he's like, that looks interesting. And he didn't realize that he wrote it. I'm pretty sure that was Cujo. Yes, that sounds Could right. have also been the Tommyknockers. There were a few in there. Um, I highly recommend to anybody listening out there especially if you ever want to be a writer to read on writing by Stephen King. It's a really great, like biography, how to write things hybrid. Um, And he talks about a lot about his personal history in there. And it's shaped a lot of what he's done. I mean, if you look at Stephen King characters, he's notorious for this too. He has like five characters, um, an alcoholic, a writer, uh, a lot of times an alcoholic writer, um, precocious kids who have an inexplicable knowledge of everything sometimes to the point of being psychic and sometimes to the point of just being really smart kids like in it but he's like this cultural touchstone and he deserves to be absolutely it's a very interesting paradoxical thing where there are big other big writers who are major sellers um i'm going to invoke james patterson here who i've met through various connections and he's a very nice person but he doesn't write the best things and he's known for that. You know, when somebody, in, you know, talks about James Patterson, they don't say, oh, yeah, he wrote this classic work of literature. They say, oh, he sold a lot of books. But Stephen King, you get back and forth. You know, you go back and forth with that. We're going to jump back to something personal here. What is your favorite Stephen King work? Because I think this is very telling about a Stephen King fan. And, you know, take your time to pick because there are, I think, over 50 of them by now. Recency bias makes me want to say it, but I won't say that because it hasn't really digested. I only read the book, uh, finished it, um, 
early last week before I saw the movie. I want to say I finished it on Monday and saw it on the movie on uh, Thursday, opening night. So I will say that my favorite Stephen King book, Stephen King book that I've read is The Shining because I just really liked the story. I thought the characterization was really just well done. And especially, you know, in the back of my mind, I hadn't seen the movie in a while, but so I was able to really look at it as a fresh story and just it, seemed, it really spoke to me. Now, granted, I haven't read a whole lot of his work. As uh, I mean, I've read a lot of it as a kid, and now that it's been at least, like, let's say 10 years since I've read several of his novels, they, they've kind of faded into my uh, recollection of them, so I would want to reread them at some point. So, But the ones I do remember, I can definitely say The Shining, I really... I would say that's my favorite. I have a very distinct memory of The Shining. It is the only book that's ever scared me. It might be the only thing of, like, media anything that has ever scared me. And I remember The Shining sitting there in my seventh grade class um, and reading about the elevators splitting open and the blood pouring out and being terrified in a well-lit room in the middle of the day, surrounded by all my friends and thinking, this is horrifying. And Stephen King is really great at doing that. I mean, it's a testament to him that I've read a decent amount, especially back in the day. Um, and that's the only thing that's ever really unsettled me that way. I, I, I think that's... I, well, I think. I'm not going to say I think. This is an easy statement to say confidently. I mean, that's why he's famous, because he's terrifying. Absolutely. And not him as a person. Um, actually, right. him as a person is quite funny. If you need evidence of this, please watch Creepshow. He's in that, and it's glorious and follow him on facebook it's 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 just always guaranteed to give you a laugh so some of the stuff he posts yes also something worth doing and i mean stephen king doesn't need us to evangelize him but i think he's a really interesting figure to talk about and to look into because he is he is the most flawed and at the same time great writers that i can think of um and he, he writes very well. He knows how to do that very well. And as a pretentious writer, I value that incredibly highly. He, he's made a special world for himself. And I think going all the way back to the beginning of where this conversation started or was supposed to start, or where we left off at the end of our break, or however time works, I think that's what's so hard for people to understand about his adaptations is the things that are scary and the things that he understands as scary it's not big bombastic action or cgi children with their heads turning around it's two little girls standing in a hallway and looking at you you know it's an elevator door opening and blood pouring out that's an inexplicable image you or know? or in it uh blood pouring out of the sink a nice little parallel there yes yes when you've written 50 books you wind up going back to certain ideas uh once or twice or three or four or five or six times and leave it to Stephen King to have an in-universe reason for that to happen. But that's a whole topic for another day. I'll get somebody on here to talk about the Dark Tower with me. I think that's going to do it for us. Because I could gush about Stephen King for hours. As I could I. recount why On Writing is a fantastic book and everything that makes it great. But you already have a first half of the show for that. And I'm sure I'll bring up On Writing again because I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. So that's going to be our show this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. It's so great to be back and rambling into a microphone like a crazy person. If you have any questions, you have any comments, you have any concerns, you want to write a review, you think we didn't write a review well and you have issues with it, anything. You want to just say hi, I'd be down for that too. Send an email to ithacanlifeandculture at gmail.com. 
That's and spelled out, not with the ampersand like you'll sometimes see in the paper. If you want to go and hit me up online, you can tweet at me at JD underscore Leary. Colin, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Uh, you can contact me at my email, ctessier, T-E-S-S-I-E-R, at ithaca.edu for any questions related to Stephen King or comic books. I'm the president of the comic book club, so always ready and willing to talk about that. And just anything, really. Always open. My ears ears always open. All right. Thank you for coming on, Colin. Always bother, Jake. It's been a blast. Yes. Likewise. That's going to be it for Deja Vu. I'm Jake Leary. Thank you for listening.